We're going to be in Isaiah chapter number 61 this morning. Isaiah chapter number 61. I'm going to squeeze one more Christmas sermon in here and uh, continuing on. I know some of these have got a little bit beyond Christmas as we've looked at uh, the, the prophecies in Isaiah. But I'm going to squeeze one more out of here from Isaiah chapter number 61. Um, I, one thing I, I did not mention, my dad in Sunday school talked about uh, a poem that uh, Pop, my great-grandfather, uh, used to quote. And I, I, I said, you know, I've got a copy of that on my desk. My mom made me a little shadow box. It's got some little keepsakes and some different things, uh, my other granddad's Bible and some different, some different things in there. And um, anyway, I've got a copy of that in there. So I went and ran off some copies, and there's a bunch of them stacked up on the table. If you want a copy of that little poem, it's the way Pop quoted it. I found the original; it's a little different. I kind of like Pop's version better, to be honest with you. So, but um, I think I've shared that in the past, maybe a few years ago. But I made some copies. If you'd like one, they're they're back there. Uh, it's just a, a really wonderful little poem, and I'll probably end up sharing it again, probably next uh, or tomorrow or something with the new year. Um, because I think it'll pop up in my Facebook memories. But anyway, um, Isaiah chapter 61. We're going to read the whole chapter. We're really going to focus just on the first two verses, but um, hey, at least it's not three chapters like I did a few weeks ago, right? It's uh, Isaiah chapter number 61, beginning of verse number one. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall build up the old wastes, they shall raise up the former desolations, they shall repair the waste cities, the desolation of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the aliens shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But ye shall be named priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. In their glory shall ye boast yourselves. Verse 7. For your shame ye shall have double, and for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in the land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be upon them. For I, the Lord, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And their seed shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them, and they are uh, that they are the seed which the Lord hath blessed. Verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. But uh, For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garment causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, 
so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. We've so far this Christmas season uh, looked at many, and, and by the way, just touching the tip of the iceberg with the wonderful prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Uh, but we've been looking at the ones about coming, really the ones that relate to uh, when Christ came, was born in Bethlehem, and what he would do for us. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we saw that a virgin would have a son. They would call him Emmanuel, God with us. We saw in Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 and 7, that the son, that this child, the son, would rule upon the throne of David forever. We saw in Isaiah 11, 1, that Christ would be the miraculous branch that came from the stump of David's line and would bless all the world. We saw last Sunday in Isaiah 40, verse 11, the character of Christ's care for us, that he is the great shepherd. And I'm going to count Christmas Eve, the shortest of all the sermons I've done. But we saw in Isaiah 53, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. That's why he was born, to save us from our sins through his death and his resurrection. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Bethlehem, what he did, but we're going to go beyond that here. You see, Christ's work wasn't finished just because he was born. That's Really, he's just getting started. That's just the start of so many things when he was born in Bethlehem. He didn't just come to earth to visit he did not come just to walk around with men for a little while and just, you know, kind of test it out, see how it feels. Sort of like those stories uh, um, you, you read all the time about the prince or the princess who runs away from the castle to go run through town and see what it's like for the common people to live. And it's a, such a classic, it's really a trope, it's a good word for it, that you see in all, all these stories. You know, that the, that's not what God did. He didn't just come down like, oh, I wonder how this is. Let me go see how it works. That's not He had purpose in what he did. In fact, I think there's two great purposes to the work of Christ, and both are in this passage. The first was accomplished when he was born, or started to be accomplished when he was born 2,000 years ago. The second is still in the future. To explain this, I'm going to look ahead in Luke chapter number 4. You can turn there if you want to, but I'll read it to you. But this passage, these first couple of verses, are quoted by Christ in Luke chapter number 4. And by the way, at this point, this is very early in Christ's ministry. He's just been baptized by John. He's just went out and been tempted in the wilderness. And uh, some of the, I, I, I'm, I'm the, the first miracles probably already been done at this point. But I mean, we're in like in the first weeks of Christ's earthly ministry when this happens. He's back home at Nazareth. He's there. He, he, he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day to worship uh, with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with all the friends and family and neighbors there. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 picks up the story. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. That's from the temptation. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. 
And there was delivered unto him the book of Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This is customary in the synagogues. As the Jews would gather to worship, you would get one of the great scrolls out with the Old Testament. And you would, you would get out the particular one. You would turn to a passage and you would read a passage and then uh, comment or expound on it. And where Christ goes is to these verses. Isaiah chapter number 61. So picking back up in Luke 4.18, he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And then suddenly he quits reading, verse 20. And he closed the book, and he gave it to, again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. By the way, we need to do that. I can sit down and preach. That'd be a good thing. You know, I can get the little stool up here. I can sit down to speak. You know, we, we need to bring that custom back. That wouldn't be a bad thing. Uh, for those of us, Jake, can agree. We get up here. That wouldn't be a bad thing sometimes. We just anyway. If you put Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, beside Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, you'll notice something is pretty clear. That when Christ is reading, he stops mid-sentence in verse number 2. And where he stops is important. I think it is very important. Why doesn't he keep on reading? Why doesn't he read the whole chapter? Why doesn't he read the whole paragraph? Actually, uh, the first, uh, my Bible has a little paragraph marks in it. The first three verses are, why didn't he just read the whole paragraph? But he stops right there and says, the scripture's been fulfilled at that point. What about the rest of verse 2? What about the rest of the chapter? Were those promises not fulfilled? Will they be fulfilled? Are they about Christ? The answers to all three of those questions are yes, yes, and yes. Yes, they were not fulfilled in the first days of Christ's ministry. Yes, they will be fulfilled. God's word will be true. Yes, they are talking about Christ. Christ will do the rest of the chapter. He just hasn't done it yet. Let me explain this to you. There's a very important concept to understand when you're dealing with Old Testament prophecy. And sometimes even, eh, I'm trying to make New Testament. can't think of it off the top of my head. But you're dealing with Old Testament prophecy. There's a very important concept to understand. Sometimes where Isaiah or Daniel or Joel or Zechariah or any of these Old Testament prophets, as they're looking down through time and, and God is you know, revealing to them things that are going to happen, Sometimes they see events close together that are actually separated by thousands of years, hundreds of years sometimes. Uh, the book of Daniel does this. It, it will jump from, for instance, talking about a, a, an evil ruler that was to come named Antiochus Epiphanes who tried to eradicate the Jews in two centuries before Christ. And then mid-verse, it'll start talking about the Antichrist who hasn't come yet. It just jumps between these two. They're very similar. They both want to eradicate the Jews. 
I think it's Clarence Larkin in, in maybe his books. That's the earliest I saw of somebody using this illustration. But uh, to describe this, what a lot of people will describe this as being mountain peaks of prophecy. I've only been to Colorado one time. Uh, I've been in the Appalachians a little bit, but that's the only time I've really been in the Rockies. And I remember driving up through New Mexico and you're just excited to get out of New Mexico, number one. But, but as, you're, as you're coming up there and you begin to see those mountains on the horizon, number one, it takes you forever to get there. You, know, you see them and go, oh, we'll be there in a little bit, but they're way off yonder. But as you're looking there and you're standing it and you see the mountains, you see those mountain peaks. And from where you're standing, looking down, looking out at those, I'm gonna tell you, it looks like you could just kind of hop, skip, and jump from one mountain peak to the other. But what you can't see from this perspective is what's in between. You see the peaks, but you can't see the valleys in between. You can't see that there's miles and miles. There may be other mountains in between there. You can't see because all you see is kind of the tips of those mountains. There's something there that you can't see, the valleys and the foothills. That's what Bible prophecy does sometimes. Sometimes two great events are shown as being right next to each other, very close, but there's a gap, there's a separation. This, is, this little quirk of prophecy is right here in Isaiah 61. Isaiah is looking ahead 700 years before Christ was born. He's looking ahead. He's seeing that the Christ child will be born. It's seeing who he is, what he will do. He sees him being the sacrifice for our sins. He sees him ruling and reigning and conquering. But he doesn't really see that as two separate things. He sees it as kind of a whole. He doesn't see that there's a gap in between what Christ is going to do. He can see that Christ would come to earth, that he would be born of a virgin, he'd walk among us for a little while, that he would die on the cross, he would rise from the grave in victory, that he would send to heaven. He's going to be in heaven though for just a little bit. And then he's coming back. He's still got work to do. By the way, John saw it. He's coming back to earth. Revelation 19, verse 11 to 13 and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Christ is coming back in power and glory. He will establish his kingdom. Daniel saw it. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. You go read Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Uh, those kind of the, the best synopsis of what lies ahead there at this point. When Christ returns, he is victorious. His enemies defeated. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Christ rules on earth. After that, Satan's loose. There's a final rebellion. Yet Christ is still victorious. The final judgment takes place. 
then there's a new heaven and a new earth as eternity is ushered in, uh, unblemished by sin. And by the way, that's just the Cliff Notes version. We could go on and on and on, and I can give you some big old thick books you can use for boat anchors. They'll talk about all the stuff that happens in between there. What you see in Isaiah chapter number 61, the verse 1 and into verse 2, that first part where Jesus stopped, he stops a very important part. Because where he stops, that's the part talking about what he did when he came the first time. But from the middle of verse 2 onward, what you're seeing is the millennial kingdom of Christ. It's something that hasn't happened yet. It's coming. Verse 2, what's the next phrase? The day of vengeance of our God. That's Armageddon. That's Armageddon. Verses 2 and 3, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint to them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, oil of joy, and we keep on going that. But the rest of this is talking about the Jews being established, the kingdom of the Messiah, and the blessings that, that are uh, on the nations uh, there. I'd say it's a marvelous, amazing description that we see. So let me summarize this for you. Isaiah chapter number 61. Um, Billy, I think there's uh, somebody delivering a package back there. Will you go check on that? So, looks like uh, Jason ordered something on Amazon. I'll have to edit this out of my sermon when I post it. Later. Let me summarize it for you. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and then the first part of verse 2. That's talking about Christ's first coming, His first advent. Isaiah 61, the middle part of verse 2. Onward, that's future. That's the second advent, the second coming. Isaiah is standing 700 years before Christ was born. He looked to Him like these two mountain peaks were right next to each other. But we're standing in between them. There's at least a 2,000 year gap and we're standing in that valley looking back at the first advent, looking forward to the second advent that's on the horizon. This valley we're in, Isaiah didn't see. Hope you're following along with me and kind of grasping this. I've just got four quick thoughts I want to give to you on this. First off, Christ's first advent, His first coming, was that of grace and mercy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What did He do when He came? He was on a mission for the Father and empowered by the Spirit. He preached hope to those burdened and ensnared by sin. He brought joy to the hopeless and the broken. He announced freedom from those chains, those bonds of sin. He announced that freedom was available. It was finally here. There was freedom from our sins. There was hope for the hopeless. Verse 2 begins with to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I was reading into that. It's a very amazing phrase in the description here. It's saying there's a time where God is going to look down uh, some people talk about favor and ex uh, God's accepting. There's this period of grace 
that is it is here. And some of the commentaries I read made a very interesting comparison I really liked. And uh, this gets into some Jewish tradition. But they compare this to the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year of the, uh, in the Jewish calendar was a very special year. And they would sound horns and proclaim it. Leviticus 25, if you want to chase down, read all, uh, some of the details on it. But they would blow the trumpets, the shofars, and they would announce this is the year of Jubilee. And one of the things that would happen is all the land would revert back to its original families, all the allotments of land. You couldn't buy land and keep it more than 50 years. It would go back to the original families that owned it. Uh, Jewish people who were uh, indentured servants, slaves, they would be freed at this time. It was a time of celebration, of joy, of excitement. What God... Well, okay... What is Christ doing as he's standing there in or sitting he's sitting there in in the synagogue in Nazareth? He's announcing, he's proclaiming that there's a wonderful time that's at hand. What's at hand? Salvation is at hand. Freedom. Not political freedom. They wanted political freedom, but spiritual freedom. Forgiveness of sins was there at hand that sins he's about to die for the sins of the world victory is about to be won at the empty tomb Christ is announcing right here hope is at hand hope that the world had never seen never had from the garden of Eden through Abraham through David never had the world had the hope it had in this moment because God had come and dwelt among us to be the sacrifice for our sins and that's what he's announcing here. It's hope. It's joy. It's blessing. It's here if we would just accept it. The second thing we see is the second advent of Christ. It's marked very differently in verse number 2. In the day of vengeance of our God. That did not happen 2,000 years ago. When Christ came the first time, there was no day of vengeance. Did not happen the first time He came. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's coming. It's coming. There's a deadline ahead. There's a time when God is going to say, I proclaimed a year, a time, a span of grace and mercy to prepare because there's a day of judgment coming. But now, no more grace. No more quarter will be given. Today, folks like to talk a lot about Christ's love, and that's, these people are experts. I'm Christians. They'll tell you, well, Jesus is all about love. Yeah, Jesus is, is love. God is love, yes. But God is also a righteous judge. The other side of the coin is just that. John chapter 5, verse 22. For the Father judgeth no man, for he, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, unto Christ. John 5.27 And hath given Him, that's Christ, authority to execute judgment also because He is the Son of Man. The, God, the Christ who extends His open arms to the world today will one day be the judge before which we all stand. Revelation chapter number 20 verses 11 through 15 And I saw a great white throne. This is the final judgment of the lost. And who is it? It's Christ presiding. 
I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which was a book of life. And the dead were judged of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You better be ready. You better be ready. The story of Christmas is just the beginning. The hope that was born in Bethlehem the Christ who came to save us is also the Christ that will one day judge, the one day rule, the one day conquer. Christmas is the beginning. The other side of the coin is Armageddon, the great white throne, the millennial reign of Christ. The third thing I want to note is that Christ's second advent, while we can highlight the judgment that it brings upon those who reject Him, it's also a blessing for His own. If you continue on in verse number 2, to the third little part of it, to comfort all that mourn. And you go into verse 3, to point unto them that mourn in Zion. Zion, where's that? That's Jerusalem. It's talking about Israel, the Jews. To give unto them beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning. We'll stop off right there. We keep going. This is talking about the blessings of the millennial kingdom, especially on the Jews. Those, by the way, who find hope in Christ through His first coming, when He came to proclaim that God is ready and willing to forgive us our sins, to have us into His family, the ones who accept Him in this offer, when the judgment day comes around, they are blessed. So well, how can that be? Well, it's because Christ bore the judgment for us. Sin has to be judged. Either you pay for it, or you accept Christ's payment for it. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, quoted these or read these on, uh, on Christmas Eve. Surely He, that's Christ, hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was judged for our sins. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. That the blessings that lay ahead for the child of God come from that. Now, like I said, Isaiah is focusing on the blessings that are on the Jews, and, and we can get off into that. But what you read right here is, is, is part of this majestic description of what is to come. And by the way, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 2.9, uh, but as it is written, I have not seen nor heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. The joys of heaven. What it's going to be like to be with Christ for eternity. To have our new body without sin. And like Randy used to say, actually have hair. I appreciate that more and more all the time. To be with loved ones forever and ever. To not know sickness or parting or death or heartaches or sorrows. All that joy. It's coming. We don't have it yet, but it's coming. The fourth thing I want us to note is this. That we are in between the first and second advents. We are between grace and judgment. 
the prophet Joel was speaking of, of a judgment in his day that was to come, but it's talking about battle between the, the kingdom of Judah and the Assyrians. But the, I love this phrase, and I love the way he words it. It's very poetic. Joel chapter 3, verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes. In Hebrew, when you double that up, it's emphasis. This is countless millions, thousands uh, gathered there. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. We're in that valley of grace today. There's a valley of decision that we are in. Where God has given folks the opportunity to hear the gospel call, to hear what Christ came to do the first time, to hear that He came and He loved us enough to die for our sins, came to, we could know forgiveness, where sins could be atoned in His blood. If we would just believe and have our faith and trust fully in Him, that's where we're at, a valley of decision. I'm wrapping this up here, just a few quick things on that idea. We have right now, as we stand between grace and judgment, a window of opportunity. We have the ability right now to choose Christ. Will we accept Him? Isaiah looked ahead. He knew He was coming. He didn't know all the details and everything. He knew a lot. But he looked ahead and knew He was coming. We have the benefit of looking back and saying, He came. We know what He did. We have the opportunity to choose Him. We have the opportunity to serve Him. We have time to do what's right. We have time to labor. We have time to proclaim the Gospel. We have time to reach the lost. We have this window of opportunity. What are we going to do with it? I ask this morning, what are you doing with the time that you have been given? As we stand in this valley between these two mountain peaks of prophecy, we look back, there's a mountain on that side. Christ came. That is about as established historical fact, by the way. Don't let the people say, oh, he, he never really come. Even the skeptics are getting to the point now, like, yeah, that's stupid. We can't argue that. One of the best attested uh, things that's ever happened is that Christ walked this earth. You can deny that He was God, but to deny He ever existed is foolishness. All the evidence is there. He came. We look back. We know He came. We know what He did. He died for us. He rose again for us. We know what He did. Now as we stand here in this valley, we look ahead. And looming over us on the horizon, I told you, when I, remember, I, I still remember that driving over and, and going towards Colorado and seeing those mountains on the horizon. Actually, I think where this really stuck with me was in New Mexico, driving towards Carlsbad. Because when you're, when you're heading towards Carlsbad, coming from Texas, that is the flattest land you've ever seen. Mark Lowry used to say it's so flat, you can stand on your tiptoes and see the back of your head. That's about how flat that is. There's just nothing. But then all of a sudden you see the, the, the Carlsbad, those hills. And you see them. And you're like, okay, we're going to be there in a little bit. 30 minutes later, they're still over there. <laughs> 30 minutes later, there's anybody ever drove that and seen that and, and realized it's like they're never going to get here? Folks, as we stand here, we know He, he came. 
And what's looming on the horizon is coming. I don't know when, but it's coming. The rest of the promises are true. As much true as it was that He was coming the first time or the promises that He's coming again. It is certain. I think the next great event is the rapture. I don't know when it will happen. There's really no warning given to it. The tribulation follows seven years of literally hell upon earth. The battle of Armageddon, Christ defeats His enemies. The Jews are delivered. His kingdom established. He rules and reigns for a thousand years. Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Her preachers describe it. This Christ and all the angels are just ready. We're ready for this. And all they're waiting for, and the eyes are on the Father just waiting for the signal to say, it's time. Go. What are we doing with this time we've been given? And as musicians come, I ask one simple question. Are you ready to meet Him? Are you ready to meet Him? What's that going to be like? Will it be a time of joy? Will you see Christ again? Will it be joy? Because that's your Savior. That's your God. That's the love of your heart. Will it be a time of blessing and joy? Will it be a time of joy because you've been ready for Him. You've got your heart prepared. You've been serving. You've been working. You've been longing for that day, preparing for it. I'm afraid for so many, though, it won't be a time of joy. When they stand before Christ, it will be a time of terror because they weren't ready. They weren't ready. They never realized that when He came the first time, it was a call to get ready, to accept the free gift of salvation. And folks, there comes a point. It's too late. It's too late. we got to accept Him while we have the time. Don't put it off. Don't wait for a more convenient day but accept Him while we have the time. As we stand here in this moment of time, in this valley, it's coming. Christ is coming. He came the first time. He's surely coming again. You better be ready. By the way, I think it's our responsibility to make sure we get as many other people ready as we can too. What are we doing with the time we have? Are you ready to meet Him? What number there, Owen? Number 120 in the Heavenly Highways, if you'll stand, we'll have a time of invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, simple message, I think, in concept to look back and see what, what Christ did for us. To look ahead and know what He is going to do. Lord, this, this time of responsibility that You have given us, it is, a, it is, is purely of Your grace. We don't deserve the opportunity. But You've given us a chance to work for You, to serve You, to share the message. You've given us a chance to accept this gift. Let us not squander the time that we have. Let us work while we have the time. Let us press forward while we have the time. 
Let us share the good news while we can. Lord, if there's somebody watching online, listening to this sometime in the future, in the room right now, doesn't know, isn't ready, Lord, let's get that settled. Christ is waiting with open arms. That's what He came to proclaim. He's waiting with open arms for those who will come to Him. Let us embrace this time while we can. Challenge us simple thoughts here this morning as we wrap up this year to be diligent with the time that we have and not squander it. Challenge us in this invitation, I pray in the holy name. Amen.